0: I think Tim scheduled me on Memorial Day because he knew that I was a type of guy that needed some help with my memory. As case in point, I ran off and left my phone this morning. It's the second time this morning I have forgotten my phone. Then Dana up here, when I said that, she says, well, I forgot mine too. So Dana, thank you so much for trying to make me feel better and at home. But, you know, let's face it. We as people tend to be forgetful. That's why we need reminders. And Memorial Day is a great example of that, as they say. It's to remind us that freedom isn't free. But there's so many different ways that I have had uh, touches and reminders of this, you know, as to our need. It can be as simple as uh, a memory aid like a string tied around the finger. Now, my problem is I tie a string around my finger and I forget what the string's there for. So that didn't work very well. If I had my phone, I'd hold it up and say, well, this is another great memory aid. You know, you can give yourself a voice message. Make sure to call. Make sure to do this. Pick up this at the store. What a great tool. You don't even have to write it down. It's it's just there. And so those are simple ways to be able to remember different things. It could be as sobering as roadside crosses to remind you that someone died in this spot as a result of a traffic accident. There are so many different ways that we have memorials or reminders that are out there. Uh, just this week, uh, we, Emily and I were at a um, graduation, like many of you do this time of year at May. We are there because of someone that we care for. Actually, our godson was graduating from high school. And so we wanted to be there and to be a part of that celebration. And one of the student speakers had said this. You know, this has been a hard year because she was really academically sharp and capable. But she said, this has been a really hard year because I had a concussion earlier as a part of an athletic event and I've had a hard time with my memory all this year. And she said, so what I've had to do is to start taking photographs or pictures of special people or places or things or events, and then I'll review those by looking back at those pictures and it helps to bring these back to my mind. You know, sometimes it's because of advancing age that our memory starts to slip. There's a couple that's at Desert Springs now But by God's grace, they're back at Desert Springs because a number of years ago they left. And they left essentially in a huff. And quite candidly, it was some things that they were ticked off at me about. I know nobody ever has that experience with Tim. But over the 30 years I've been a senior pastor, there's been more than one person who has had taken issue with me of one thing or another or the direction that we were going as a church and got ticked off and left and went to a different church. Well, about two, two and a half years ago, they came back. And the reason they came back is because his wife is beginning to experience memory loss and challenges associated with uh, just advancing age. And so he goes to the doctor and says, what can I do to help this? And the doctor told him, you need to surround her as much as possible with familiar people and familiar places and memories that are fond to her. And thank God that a key part of their remedy, so to speak, was to come back to Desert Springs. And they have been meaningfully involved and healthfully involved. And it's just wonderful every Sunday to see them and to celebrate God's goodness and to give her a hug and, and just to affirm our love for them. But you see, there's so many ways that our memory tends to, to slip and to go. And, and uh, it's, it's just difficult. We need memory because we tend to... Our def- our gravitational pull or our default setting is to to move more toward uh, forgetfulness. And throughout the scriptures, the same thing is true. There's all kinds of different memorials. And I really want to applaud you all for taking time to get into the Older Testament, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, some would say, the Hebrew scriptures. All those mean the same thing. The Book of the Law and the Prophets, Tim did such a great job explaining that last week as far as the Pentateuch, the books of the law and different things into why that was given. But we also have sections known as the prophets and we have sections that are known as poetry and wisdom literature. All of these are a part of the Older Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. But one of the key places in a significant portion of that scripture in the 39 books of the Older Testament is this. And that is history, historical narrative. And in essence, you're going to see today that the historical narrative of the Old Testament is in essence a memorial into itself to remind us of God, to remind us of his faithfulness, to remind us of his work within people, to remind us of the positive things that people did and the negative things they did so they can be examples to us that we can learn from their positive decisions, their wise decisions, and we can learn from their mistakes, from their sinful decisions that we don't have to repeat them. And this morning I want to look with you at three different examples where even the term memorial is used in the historical narrative of the Older Testament. And they'll actually of them will fall in the area that Tim was talking about last week, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, but it's different than the giving of the law, which is what he was referring to. It is having to do with here's how God showed up. Here's how God worked in the lives of his covenant people, Israel. The first one we'll look at is Exodus chapter 12. And I'll uh, be looking in chapter 12, and I'm going to land on verses 11 through 14. But let me tell you what's happening at this point. If you want to turn, that's great. If you want to just sort of go along for the ride, write down the passage and look it up later. But anyway, this is what's happening. The children of Israel, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have been in Egypt now for over 400 years. And they came down because Joseph was there. He was a guy that God used in amazing ways to preserve this infant nation of Israel. In the 430 years that they were there, God blessed them and they grew. Well, they grew numerically so much so that they were a threat to the Egyptian people. And so for many years they had now been in bondage and slavery... Under harsh taskmasters and especially the Pharaoh overseeing all of this was trying to subjugate God's people. Now the Abrahamic covenant said this. God's promise to Abraham was those that bless you, I will bless. But those that curse you, I will do what? I will curse. So it was very clear that God is saying if if people are against you, they're against me. Therefore, I am the one who's got your back. I am the one that's leading you, and if people are against you, don't worry, I'm for you. And so what has happened is Moses, the great deliverer comes before Pharaoh on multiple occasions and says, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? No, no, no. There have been nine times up to this point, despite the fact that God has come and done amazing works and incredible plagues on the land of Egypt, Each one of which, if you look at those historically, were really polemics or or, uh, an attack on the false gods of Egypt that they might know that there is but one God, Yahweh, the one whose name is I Am. And so in every one of these plagues, it is an attack on one of the gods or the deities of the Egyptian people. And every time, nine times, Pharaoh says no, 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 no. Well, here's the 10th and the final plague. And God says, all right, I'm going to do this, and this, this will result in the people being let go. And that was that the, if they did not let the people go, then a plague, or where God was going to come into the land, and there was going to be such a specific thing that would cause the death of the firstborn, not of just the children, but also of the animals the death of the firstborn, that if you don't let my people go, this is what's going to happen. Every time God warned them. And so he's telling the children of Israel, look, tonight's the night. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to come into the land, but I want to make sure that you are preserved, and this is the way that you are to be preserved. You're to take a lamb from your flocks, an unblemished lamb, a year old, not the worst, not the dregs of the, of the flocks, but the best. Not some mangy animal, not some lame animal, not something that you can't take to market, but the very, very best of your flocks. And in the day of sun, which cor- corresponds to basically our month of March or April, as it does this year, and that was the first month of the Hebrew calendar. He said, this is the beginning of the year for you. I want you to do this. I want you to take that, the very best lamb, and I want you to bring it into your home. And I want you to keep it in your home starting from the 10th day of the month of Nisan. And for four days, that lamb becomes a member of the family. Now, you know what happens. One of my Jewish friends who's now with the Lord, but he came to faith in Jesus as his Messiah, and he spent the rest of his life seeking to convince people, Jew and Gentile, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he would say this, he says, you know, if you take a lamb into your home, after four days what happens? It stops being a barnyard animal, right? It's a pet, what did the children do? What did the children do with that lamb? They play with it, what else did they do? They give it a name. This is not some anonymous barnyard animal that just ends up on the table. This is a member of the family, right? Well, let me back away from that just a second. I had a friend a number of years ago who had a large family, a lot of kids, and he said, you know, we do like to have meat on our table, and so we need to find some some way to supplement our meat budget because it's so expensive. So he started raising rabbits. Now, you know about rabbits, right? They were the ones that Noah had a problem with taking them onto the ark because he said, only two, only two, only two, because they multiplied like what? Rabbits. Rabbits. So, anyway, they are very prolific creatures. So, he figured we'll have these rabbits and we'll have all kinds of meat to supplement our dietary needs. Well, the problem is the children started naming the rabbits. How well do you think that went over at dinner time at their home? Not good. <laughs> exactly, they got it. <laughs> Not good at all. So, anyway, this lamb from the 10th to the 14th is a member of the family, but on the night of the 14th, they were to take that lamb out and they would do something unthinkable. And because the children in the room, I'm not going to get into graphic, gory detail, all right, because that could really mess up the rest of your weekend for some of you who are parents. But they would basically slay the lamb. You know what I mean, right parents? Okay, they'd take the lamb's life. And they would take the blood from that lamb, that unblemished lamb. And they were instructed to take the blood and take some hyssop, which is a plant like a paintbrush type of thing, and to paint some of the blood on the doorpost of their home and on the lintel or the headboard that's over it. And What it says in Exodus chapter 12 is when the death angel comes through the land, I will see the blood and I will do what? I will pass over your home so that death will not come near to you. And for every home that had the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the home, the scriptures tell us that the child lived. But wherever there was not the faith that it took to put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, there was death that came to that home. This was so that people might know that God was true to his word and that there is but one God. Here's what it says in chapter 12. Verse 14 and following. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Then he goes on to talk about the feast of unleavened bread. But then verse 25 it says, And when you come to the land the Lord will give you as he has promised you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, hear that. When your children say to you as they observe what's going on, what do you mean by this service? You will say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And that's what promoted the great exodus of the people of Israel, the Israelites, out into the land going to the land that God had promised to them, the land of Canaan. If you turn over a few pages to Exodus chapter 17, you'd see that another thing happens that is to to be a memorial. That was a specific event that took place, and the Passover was to be continued on as an act of worship to remind people of what God had done in saving their people. Then we get to, we find that as they travel, 600,000, the text says of men plus women and children, quite a great group of Israelites that are going through the land. They encounter different people there, with. they encountered people like the Amorites and the Hittites and the uh, Jebusites and the cellulites. And OK, you were listening, right? <laughs> Well, cellulite can be a a threat. But these other people, the Amalekites especially, or Amalekites, were threatened. And they, they came out. God had provided for his people marvelously. He provided them bread to eat, which is called manna. You know what manna means, what the word manna means? What is it? That seemed like a very logical thing when they had never seen this before. God provided this manna for them. And they go, what is it? And he's saying, don't worry about it. Just eat it. It's good for you. All right, like us as parents, we have all done with our children. Don't worry about it. Eat it. It's good for you. Well, anyway, God graciously provides. When they're out of water, he provides for them water from the rock. He provides later on quail for them, which I love quail, but not just to watch them, but also as a culinary uh, delicacy. But anyway, uh, God provides for them amazingly. But they come up against this group of people called the Malachites, and they decide that they're going to do battle with the children of Israel. And what did God say to Abraham? Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Those who are with you, I will be with, and for, and those who are against you, I will be against. Well, that's exactly what happens in this passage as well. So we see this is the place where Moses says to Joseph, his Joseph, to Joshua, his commander-in-chief, he says, Look, you go do the battle. I'm going to go up on the mountain. I'm going to pray. We're going to be waging warfare. You're going to be doing the spiritual warfare. You're going to be doing the physical warfare. I'm going to be doing the spiritual warfare. And the people that go with Moses are Aaron and Hur. And Moses says, as long as he had his hand extended to heaven, his staff, then the Israelites under Joshua's command prevailed. But whenever his arms grew weary, the text says in Exodus 17, and his arm came down, then the Amalekites prevailed. So what they did is Aaron and Herg on either side of him and hold his arms up and then they get tired and so then they prop his arms up with some rocks and, and so as long as these are here, they keep that up and Moses is praying and Joshua is leading the people in battle and they are winning. So it says here in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. And recite it in the ears of Joshua, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. Jehovah Nisi, or Nisan, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The reason that he's doing that is because they cursed the children of Israel. And God is saying, these are my people, they're the apple of my eye. Because you have cursed them, I will come against you. But notice what he said. Write this down as a memorial to remind you of how God showed up, is in essence what he's saying. Well, these are two types of memorial. One is a is a religious action, it's, it's a, a rite, it's something that's repeated, it's done over and over to remind them of what has happened and how God led them through the Passover. This is a written memorial. As I said, much of the Old Testament is a written memorial in and of itself to what God has done, His faithfulness to His people. I want to look through a third one with you. And this steps outside of what Tim was talking about. This is in the book of Joshua as to Joshua now is going to go into the promised land and take the people there and this is recorded in Joshua chapter 4. Well what happens is they come right up on the river Jordan they've spied out the land and they're getting ready to cross over but but the waters are at a high level they're running really really high perhaps it had been a wet year I don't know. Uh, My wife and I were just up in Flagstaff a few days ago. We drove up past Mormon Lake and Lake Mary. And these are natural lakes, at least Mormon Lake is. I've never seen so much water in Mormon Lake as there is now, probably in 40 years. I've never seen so much water in Lake Mary. Well, it's because of how much snow we had, how much runoff, how much rain there has been this year, which has been unusual. Well, in the land of Israel, they would have the same types of things. And so the river is running really, really high so much that they can't cross it. Now, they're smarter than a lot of people that are the stupid motorists that you always see on the news. When desert washes are flowing really high, you always see on the news people being lifted out by a helicopter and cars floating down and because they didn't abide the don't cross this wash sign. Well, the Israelites are smarter than that. So they see that the waters are raging. They're coming down the river. And so they pray. They come before the Lord. And the Lord said, here's what I want you to do. And when you put... The priest and the Ark of the Covenant in the front. And I want, as soon as their souls touch the Jordan River, it's going to dry up. It's like there's going to be a divine dam that's there. And just like they crossed the Red Sea, I'm going to provide for you the ability to cross over into the land of Canaan. Now that takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? Sure. But that's exactly what God told them to do. So they obeyed. The priests come. Their feet touched the water. The water stopped. The whole army and the whole ensemble of the Israelites were able to cross over in the Canaan. And God said to them, according to Joshua chapter 4, when you do, then I want you to do this. I want you to pick up stones, 12 stones out of the riverbed, so that you can erect an altar on the other side. One stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel so that I can remind you that, again, I showed up. I provided for you in a powerful and miraculous way. In chapter 4 of Joshua, then it says this. Look in verse 5. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask in time to come... Do you catch that again? When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord... When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So they erected a memorial of 12 stones to remind them and successive generations of how God provided. Of how he showed up. Of how he demonstrated his love, his presence, and his power to his covenant people. We go to Washington, D.C., There's all kinds of memorials. I love the Lincoln Memorial. I love to be there. I love to write, read the inscriptions on the wall to to think back to a very dark and difficult time in our country's history. And yet to think of how God provided leadership through Abraham, Lincoln, and others to preserve the State of the Union. I think in terms of as I walk around, I look at other places like the World War II Memorial. And it brings back, I know, My father-in-law served in World War II. They're considered the greatest generation, but they're dying off. There's not many there left. And we tend to forget the sacrifice that others have done. Well, that's exactly what was happening here in a cruder fashion. They erect not something that takes millions of dollars, but 12 stones, natural material from right there, and they erect an altar. But the purpose is the same, to remind them and to remind their children Of what God had done. See that's why we all need memorials. And that is that we need to be reminded of how God has been faithful in the past. Because when you and I are aware of how God has worked faithfully in the past. It gives us confidence and courage for the present. Whatever circumstance we're going to throw. Whatever threat that is there. Whatever thing that's undaunting. It gives us confidence to face it. That God is still with us. And it also gives us hope for the future. Let me repeat that. When we're reminded of God's faithfulness in the past, it gives us confidence and courage for the present and hope for the future. But that future is not just with us personally. Did you notice at least in two of these, when your children see these things and ask you? Because these are things that are better, as they say, caught, than taught. When your children see these things and ask you what does this mean? It's an opportunity to tell them of God's faithfulness and His presence. That's why God in His wisdom throughout the historical narrative of the Old Testament has given us these writings because He wants us to know these things that He is still at work. Now let's talk a few minutes about how to respond to all of this. One, I give you several suggestions. Uh, And I think that you'll find these would be helpful for you. Read the word. Make that a part of your regular personal growth. Read the word. Now we should study the word too. The scriptures tell us study the word. But sometimes we get so immersed in the details that we don't see the proverbial forest for the trees. Read the word. Read the stories of scripture. And I even hesitate to say stories. Read the narrative of scripture. But see it in its flow. If you don't understand all the pieces of it, look, go with the main flow that's there. Read the scriptures, and especially don't neglect the reading of the Older Testament. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and I'm just going to tell you what what Paul says to the people there. He says, these things are written about the Israelites that as examples to us as Christ followers, as examples that we might Learn from their mistakes and learn from the things that they did well and that we're not condemned to repeat them. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Well, when you are reading in the Scriptures, and especially when you're reading in the narrative material, don't try to take it straight across and apply everything. If you go start sacrificing goats, your neighbors are going to think you're really weird. And God's not asking you to do that. He did of them. He's not of you. That was then. This is now. There's a big difference. Christ came, Christ died on a cross. There's no longer need for sacrifices, but there still is need for obedience and for faith and for following. So ask these three questions as you read the scriptures. One, what does this teach me about God? That hasn't changed. Secondly, what does this teach me about mankind, about people, male or female? What does this teach me about how we as people are? Because human nature hasn't changed a whole lot. In the last two to four thousand years. And ask yourself as you read this, what does this teach about the nature of the relationship of God to us as people? Sometimes people talk about the Old Testament as a God of anger and a God of vengeance and a God of justice. No, throughout the scriptures, you see of God's hesed, his loyal love to his chosen people. In the New Testament, you see God's love and his grace and his mercy. You also see a lot. About his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. It's the same God, just different points in time in history. So, read the word. You know, uh, my wife oftentimes would be there with the children more at times, like when they were going to bed or when they were getting up in the morning, and they oftentimes would ask her, What are you doing? And she said, I'm reading Jesus' word. I'm reading Jesus' word. And they saw that, that, that on an ongoing basis was an important thing for us as our personal growth. Hopefully they will catch that for themselves. Second thing I would say that we can take away from this is be regular in corporate worship. Two ways. One, when we gather on Sunday, it's not the Sabbath, and you've been spent time in the Sabbath, so I'm not going to belabor that, but there is a principle in Scripture that predates the law going all the way back to creation to set aside a day. Set aside a day to focus on God. Set aside a day for spiritual and emotional and physical renewal. We weren't made to work seven days a week. And the purpose is given there is the Lord even created it all. In six days on the seventh day he rested. Why? Because he was tired? No, because he wanted to set an example for us and to set forth something that would be healthy for us and honoring to him. So be involved. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are here today of all times on Memorial Day weekend. Praise God. Thank you. I'm glad somebody showed up. You know, but encourage others to do the same. Make it a regular part of your life and that of your children. A second piece, and you're going to do this in just a few minutes when we finish the message, and that is make sure that you keep the Lord's table central. Remember that whole thing about the Passover? The Lord's Table is a New Testament reminder of what the Passover is to Jewish people. Understand that the roots of Christianity run deep and are deeply embedded in Judaism and the faith that is there. The Older Testament is so important to know. Luke 22, what did Jesus say about the Lord's Table? Do this, why? In remembrance of me. That's a memorial. Similar to the Passover, having its roots in the Passover. Three, establish family traditions. That would be real helpful to do. and It can be different things. One of our friends who's heavily involved in ministry and written a lot of books and other stuff, Tim and Darcy Kimmel, we used to go to their home uh, for Christmas and we would always have the children act out the Christmas story. Now there was some real interesting stuff, especially when it came for the time of delivery of Jesus when there was a miraculous... Delivery of this baby doll that was stuffed underneath of a robe. So it it was always brought some laughs as well as some tears. So anyway, things like that are good. Understand Tim's teaching of of his son the other day on the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God. I think of the omni being from the southeast as as an athletic venue in Atlanta, but his, his is more theologically correct than mine. But he was talking about, can God walk through that wall? Great thing. You know, I I was just with uh, a doctor looking at the post-op stuff on my knee earlier this week, and she's also a fellow believer. I didn't know that until I went in, and she's a part of another church in the valley, but she was talking about with her daughter. You have to make this child appropriate, but she was talking with her daughter, said she's such a literalist. So when we talk about Jesus in her heart, she can't figure out how there's room in there for him. And so she was talking about that. And then her mother had died, meaning the doctor's mother had died, the children's grandmother, of a heart issue. And one of the children said this, Well, if Nana had a problem with her heart, why didn't Jesus just fix it while he was in there? I love that. I love the simplicity. But understand, Jesus said it's the faith of a child. What a beautiful thing. Establish those family traditions because it's such a rich time for you as well as for them. Tell stories of how God's worked in the past. Tell stories. That's what the narrative is a written form of that, but talk about it orally among yourselves. You just did that with your volunteer dinner or or your your celebration event. I understood you were talking, Tim, in your message last week about how many great stories there were about how God has been at work. Keep that up. Keep doing it. i got to tell you, it's so important, and I see this, We have a a young couple who were in town to go to school at Phoenix Seminary and they were fellowshipping with us at Desert Springs and this last week, and some of you may have seen this on the news, their little one-year-old fell into a bucket of water and drowned. But by God's grace, is still on life support. She's still with us. Her brain is still 95 to 96% unaffected, but there's serious issues still with her lungs and she's in a fight for her life. But even as I sat with this young couple at the hospital the other day, they, they talked about when they were in Africa and one of their other children they thought had died or was on the doorstep of death because of some seizures that she had. And to see how God brought them through that time and how this, that girl, that daughter is strong and healthy, still brought a smile to their face, even in the midst of the very difficult and uncertain situation that they're in presently. Remembering how God was faithful in the past giving them confidence and courage for today and hope for tomorrow regardless of what happens. You know the stories that we look at is this year Desert Spring celebrates our 40th birthday, 40th anniversary in September and and it, it takes us back as we're remembering how God has been faithful over past years and there's one couple that came in one of the early years when they're meeting in elementary school sort of like you guys are doing here and There may be 55, 60 people in the room. And one of the things that was announced was how much money had to come in the next week to pay the land payment. And this person, it was his first Sunday at church, as they were walking out, he looked at his wife and said, you know, we got to come back next week and see what happens because there's no way this has happened. These people are crazy if they think that's going to happen. And God moved and God provided. And by September of this year, it's our prayer that we're going to be completely debt-free. 18 months ago, 18 months ago, we started out and had $720,000 worth of debt on our buildings. As we stand here today, and that's on the, on the heels of a three-year capital expansion program, which most people say that can't happen. It's not going to be done. That's stupid to even try that. As I stand before you today, unless the figures have changed downward since then, we have less than 90000 to go. In 18 months, over seven, almost $700,000 God has provided. Now, we're not doing that to be debt-free. We're doing that to free up those funds that can then go to ministry expansion in Phoenix and around the world. See, when you tell stories like this, it encourages and helps. And by the way, I would encourage you guys, anytime you do a financial piece. University or any type of training like make yourself available to do that. You will be glad that you did And The last thing I want to say is do this live a living, leave a living legacy That's the greatest form of memorial. How do you live your life for your children and for those that know you? This is the greatest way to see how God's at work and encourage others I was on the phone with a friend who called me and her husband just died three years ago and we were talking about this because something had happened to encourage her, and I'll tell you about it in a second. But let me give you some of the backstory. Her husband's name is Rick, and when when Beth first started coming to the church, Rick really didn't want anything to do with it. He had too many intellectual objections to Christianity. He was a very competent, capable. Uh, intellectually solid guy. He loved sports on Sunday, so he said, no, you go, you take the kids and you go. I want to be here, I want to do this, I'll support you, but that's where I want to be. Well, because God began to work in his heart and on any of us in ways that we can't describe, he came to church on a Sunday and then came back and he came back and he came back and somewhere in this process gave his heart to Jesus. He didn't know anything about the Bible, but he wanted to know And he also said, I think one of the best ways to do is to start teaching children. So he started teaching first grade boys. And the Bible stories, the narratives that he heard like David and Goliath were all new to him. So he poured himself into it. And that's how he began to learn the word of God. It was great to watch this guy, 6'8". He was a uh, collegiate uh, uh, lineman. And uh, 6'8", big guy, walking around campus and all these little boys falling like ducklings just all over the place. Well, he got more involved in the Word, began to take Bible studies like with Tom Schrader and Insight for Living, other types of things like that, just grew like a weed. And strong guy, very much involved in discipleship. And then three years ago, a little bit over, was discovered he had a very rare and aggressive form of cancer. And it eventually took his life. But what Beth, his wife, told me just about four days ago, She had been in one of the places he had frequented during his treatment, and she said it just brought a whole range of those things back to her. And she was really dealing with it. It was hard. It was hurt. It opened up an old wound. And then she gets a call from someone she wasn't expecting. She didn't recognize the number. This call was from one of the nurses, a male nurse, that cared for Rick during his time with cancer. And was with him right as he came out of a doctor's office in which he had gotten really, really bad and discouraging news. And this nurse told Beth, said when he came out, I could tell from his face it was heavy news, but he said these words to me. He said, God is good. God is good. And he said, I've been wanting to call you and tell you that. And so I had your phone number in my phone and I just haven't thought about it until now. And so I wanted to call you and tell you that his words to me have helped me in dealing with this to have an eternal perspective on these types of things. What a rich thing and what a rich legacy Rick left behind in that fashion. I want to ask you, what legacy, what memorial are you leaving behind? For your children? For your coworkers? For people in your neighborhood? Leave a living legacy Leave that memorial. God will bless it. It will give, as we focus on how he's provided in the past, confidence for today, regardless of what the challenges are, and hope for tomorrow. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for the truth of your word. I want to thank you for the presence of your spirit to take your word and to make it a reality in our lives. I thank you for the men and the women and the children that are here at Phoenix Bible Church. I thank you for your faithfulness to them over these years. And I pray that you will grant and give to them even a much broader sphere of influence as you bless the work of their hands. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of partnering with them in your ministry. And may many people come to know Jesus as they make much of him. I pray this today in his name. Amen.